Okay, so this morning we're talking about idolatry, but first I got to share a story. So anyone who knows me knows that I love baseball, and not just any baseball. I love the Texas Rangers because I'm from Texas, all right? And a few years ago, the Rangers actually used to be good. I don't know if you guys remember that, but the Rangers were good at some point. And a few years ago, they went off to the playoffs, which if you follow sports, playoffs is what you want for your team, right? And they advanced to, it's game five, all right? And so Rangers have won two games. They're playing the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Blue Jays have won two games. And so this game is it. The winner advances to the next round of the playoffs, Okay, so I'm watching, and up to this point, I mean, I've already watched almost every single game of the season, which if you know baseball, that's 162 games, all right, so I loved baseball, okay, I still love baseball, all right, but we're in this game five, and the game is tied in the seventh inning, okay, and so it's tense, and I'm not like sitting watching the game, I'm standing right in front of my TV, okay, and you've got a runner on first base and a runner on third base, two outs, okay? We're, we're like, we're almost there, okay? And we're pitching. And so Jose Bautista, uh, this is kind of like um, when you're, this is kind of like when they read the book of Esther, the, you know, they hiss every time they say the name Haman. So when I say Jose Bautista, you got like, okay? So okay, Jose Bautista comes up to the plate. Yeah, there you go. That's good. And um, two outs, we're like, we're, we're going to get through it. And he throws the pitch, and he just slams it deep into left center field. It's a no-doubter. He throws his bat, and I kid you not, when he, when, as soon as the ball left his bat, the whole stadium, you can hear, like, the collective, <gasps> right? And I literally, like, it was like my heart got ripped out, and I fell to my knees <laughs> and shed a tear. I'm not kidding. <laughs> And it was at that point that I realized, okay, maybe I have a problem. (laughs) Maybe I have an idol. So Isaiah is writing in a time when there's a lot of idolatry. Um, He's writing during the time of the encroachment of the Assyrian Empire. And this is important because he's writing to the nation of Judah. And for those of you who may not know, God established the nation of Israel but they had sort of a civil war, and so it split into two. And the northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom adopted the name Judah, and the southern kingdom holds the Davidic line. So these are the kings that God has appointed through history are in the nation of Judah, and Isaiah is writing to Judah. And the Assyrian Empire is coming. So if you look at this map, everything that's green is the Assyrian Empire. And then if you look this little bitty dot right here, the little yellow circle, that's, that's Judah, okay? The only thing not conquered by Assyria to this point. And so they're completely surrounded. There's military pressure. There's political pressure. And for those in the northern kingdom of Israel, they've already been conquered, and they are engaging in false gods. They're worshiping false gods. And this is a picture of an altar, a sacrificial altar to false gods in the north, in the kingdom of Israel. They, they would sacrifice animals and even babies on this altar. So beyond just the social and political and military pressure, there was also this religious pressure to engage in the worship of false gods. And so the good news, the good news is that uh, they're, they're not going to be conquered by Assyria, but Isaiah warns that they will be a conquered 
by Babylon. So Isaiah says, don't, don't worry, guys. You're going to survive this. Assyria won't conquer you, but you're going to get conquered by Babylon. Why did they get conquered by Babylon? Because they engaged in idolatry. God says, because of this, I'm sinning in Babylon. So um, this is what Isaiah says to the king of Judah. He says, look, a time is coming when everything in your palace and the things your ancestors have accumulated to this day will be carried away to Babylon. And he says, nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own descendants, whom you father, will be taken away and will be made officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And this does happen. So God knew that Judah would face even more pressure in Babylon. God knew that if they were, if they were facing pressure to engage in idolatry in this situation, how much more so when they were in Babylon. God knew that in Babylon, his people would face even more pressure. And we know this, uh, the book of Daniel takes place in the kingdom of Babylon. So we studied Daniel uh, about a year ago, I think. And in the book of Daniel, we get a window into what life was like in the Babylonian empire. And if, for those who may not remember the story, this is, they're, they're told that they have to worship this false god in the kingdom of Babylon. And so uh, this official comes up to Nebuchadnezzar the king, and he says, You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Okay, so notice that the Babylonians didn't care that they were Jews. That's fine. They could be Jews, but they should just also worship the golden image, right? And in the same way, we face societal, cultural pressure today to engage in the idols of this world. They they don't mind if, if, you know, you say you believe in God. They don't even mind if you go to church, but you tell them that the things they worship aren't worthy of worship, now there's pressure. So God's people faced social and political pressure to embrace idolatry. God knows they're going into Babylon and they're going to face this. In the same way, a secular culture surrounds us and they're pressuring us to conform. They're pressuring us to adopt their idols. So if God knew that we were going to face this kind of pressure, if God knew his people are going to face pressure to engage in idolatry, what would he say? If God could say something to his people who are facing this pressure, what would he say? Well, he says, do not be afraid, I alone am God. Look at Isaiah 44, look at verse 6. I'm going to start at verse 6 and we're going to catch up to verse 8. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount to it me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. In other words, they can't, okay? And he says, verse eight, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. So he says, do not be afraid. I alone am God. 
So I call this section the supremacy of Yahweh. And I use that name because that's the personal name of God. And there are a lot of people who worshiped God, but there was only one people who worshiped Yahweh. And he says, I am supreme. I am the only God. So this pressure to conform to this world, to worship the things of this world, it's there, it's present. But do not be afraid. Remember that God is supreme. When we go into society and feel the pressure to conform, remember God and do not be afraid. So, all right, we've seen what God says about himself, that he alone is God, that there's no other who can tell the things to come, that there's no other God. But what does he say about idols? What does he say about idols? He talks about the futility of idolatry. So verse 9, he says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. What has, who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them be put to shame. So verse 9, the first thing we see is that the people themselves are futile. The people who fashion these idols are futile. Um, This word futile has this idea, it it means empty or nothing. And in fact, if you're reading out of almost any other major translation, it's going to render this word nothing. So those who fashion these idols, they themselves are empty. When when we build idols in our own lives, we, we fashion them together and they leave us empty. That's the first thing he says. And then he goes on to talk about the precious things. He says, their precious things are of no profit, or in other words, of of no value. So the precious things are of no value. The things that they treasured, that they said, okay, this is valuable. This is worth something. He says, they're of no profit. And not only are there things of no profit, but even the idol itself is no, of no profit. That's what verse 10 says. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Why would you do that? It's of no profit. These things are of no value. They're of no value. And then verse 11, talking about the futility of idols once more, he says, all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. The people making the idols are mere men. Okay, why is this important? Why does it matter that they're men? Well, he's pointing out that how can a man make the divine? How can man make God when man is made by God? And he says the consequence of this is that they, will, they, they can assemble, they can stand up, but when they stand before God, they will be put to shame. A thing that is created is inherently not divine. You can't create something divine. Whatever created it, Now that's the divine, right? So the thing that's created is inherently not divine. And when we stand before the true divine, the true God, the people making idols will be put to shame before God. If we are constructing idols in our lives, then there's going to be shame. That doesn't mean that, you know, God's going to reject us. We know that salvation is by faith in Christ, that it's not based on what we do, but sometimes the things that we do do bring shame. And when we stand before God, if we are constructing idols in our lives, there will be shame for that. And God says that there's shame for them. So in this section, idolatry leaves you empty. Idolatry leads to shame. 
and the things that you worship are themselves worthless. So the idolatry itself leads to shame. The things that you worship are worthless, and, and idolatry ends up leaving you empty. And you might have found that in your own life, where you sought meaning from something, and then it left you empty. And God says that's exactly what happens. Those who fashion idols are empty. They're nothing. They're futile. So this is what idolatry leads to. So let me ask a question. What do you worship? What do you worship? And, and perhaps you're listening and thinking, well, I, you know, I don't really worship anything. Like, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't worship anything. So I guess I'm excluded from this question. No, you're not. Every single person worships something. And, and that's, as I said earlier, God made us as worshipful beings. Everybody worships something. You can see it in society. Everybody's worshiping. In fact, they crave to worship because we were made to worship. And so the question is not whether we worship, it's whom or what do we worship? Are we worshiping the right one, God himself? I already told you something I worship. I, I love baseball too much. And uh, I, if you add up the time spent watching 162 games, baseball's not a short sport, right? <laughs> um, that's, that's a long time. And uh, I, I subscribed to MLB TV for many years, which costs like $120 a year. So if you add up the amount of money that I spent on watching baseball through the years, that's a lot of money. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money on baseball. Another, another idol that I have in my life, if I'm not careful about it, is travel. I love to travel. And, and the first thing I think about, if I have a little spare money in the bank account, I think, okay, where could I go? Where could I go? And I'm looking at cheap deals and flights, and I realize, well, I can't go anywhere anyway. But, you know, but that, that's an idol of mine. Maybe, maybe yours is OSU athletics. Maybe it's not baseball, but maybe it's season tickets to the football games. Maybe it's uh, basketball or whatever the case. Um, and, and I get it. I was a paddle person, right? So if you ever watch OSU football, like the guys who were banging the paddles on the wall, like that was me, okay? I, I loved OSU football, so I get it. Um, maybe your idol is social media, having a certain persona or presence on social media. Um, maybe it's being a good mom. Not that that's a bad thing, but maybe it's, maybe it's the appearance, other people thinking you're a good mom. Maybe it's uh, fitness, being in shape. Oh, I eat healthy. I go to the gym every day, right? Posting about it, letting everyone know, like, oh, I'm in shape. Um, you can tell I don't go to the gym every day, but it, for some people, it's a problem. Um, maybe it's wealth and business success. Stillwater is kind of a unique city because we're, we're not the city, you know, we're not Edmond or Oklahoma City, um, and yet we're not small either, so it's easy to become a big fish in a small pond, right? Maybe you take pride in that. Maybe that's the thing you're after, is the success and the, the, the status that comes with wealth and business success. And so as I, as I was thinking about this question, what do we worship, I, I began to think through, okay, what was the first idol in the Bible, if I could think back, okay, what's the first idol? And, and perhaps you're like me, the first thing I thought of was the golden calf, right? The golden calf in Mount Sinai. They made an idol. Uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he's receiving the law, and in the meantime, they're at the base of the mountain making a golden calf. And you think, come on, guys. And I thought, well, no, because that's like with Moses. I mean, there's got to be one before that. And I thought, okay, maybe it's the Tower of Babel. You know, they're, they're all trying to put this stuff together so that they can get to heaven. And then I realized, no, no, no first idol was self. In Genesis chapter 3, 
It was Eve who said, um, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that she would be like God, knowing good and evil, she took from its fruit and ate. It was self. It was me. The first idol I build is me. So that's the struggle with idolatry, is that it all starts with the self, and everything flows from it. So God shows that he, God shows to his people that idolatry is futile. He shows that it's futile, but next he shows that it's absurd, the absurdity of idolatry. And, and this is fun. I love this section because God really lays it on thick. He's like, this is absurd. Look at verse 12. He says, the man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work of coals, fashioning it with his strong arm, working he also gets hungry. Oh, his strength fails. He drinks no water and, oh no, he becomes weary. The, the guy who's trying to make a god who with his strong arm is dependent on food and water. His strength fails. Verse 13, another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with planes and outlines it with a compass. He makes it in the form of a man, makes it like the beauty of a man so they may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. So he can't even make it grow. So verse 12, the first thing he points out, the problem with idolatry, the absurdity of idolatry, is that people are finite. The people making gods are plagued by their own finitude. You know, they've got their strong arms and they're casting away, making these idols, and then, oh, I gotta take a break, I'm hungry. And you think you're going to make a God? There's, there's an inherent absurdity in idolatry because we're plagued by our own finitude. And I thought this was a really good quote from J. Alec Mortier. He's, he's Irish, but I'm going to spare you the accent. He says, The exposure of faulty thinking goes on. Not only the folly that the human can somehow create the divine, but also that human strength can create the almighty. And that strength, needing outside nourishment, can produce the self-existent, self-perpetuating life of God. It's a really good quote. So we're plagued by our own finitude. Uh, but the next thing is that the gods themselves are finite. So the gods themselves that are being created are plagued by their own finitude. And we saw this in verse 14, that they take the trees. He, he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and it's the rain that makes it grow. So even the very thing that they're crafting into an idol is dependent on the grace and provision of God. And so here's another really good quote. He says, the gods themselves have no life for they are made from metals or from trees, which ironically, the true God made. It's from John A. Martin. So these things that they're trying to turn into gods have in themselves no life, and the only life that they do have is life that was given by the true God. So they're taking the grace and the provision of God and then casting it into a fake God. And we look at that and we say, this is absurd. This is absurd. And that's the point. God wants to show the absurdity of idolatry. And then he says, he takes the wood, and in verse 15, then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. 
He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He falls down. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. And then verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half, he, he eats meat as he roasts a roast, and he's satisfied. He also warms himself, and he says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And if you've ever seen Castaway, um, this makes me think of like when he's whittling the stick and finally gets the flame, and he's like, I have made fire. Okay. Yeah, I, anyway, so, so he, he takes this wood, and he makes a fire. And then the rest of it, verse 17, he makes into a god his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. There are things in our lives that we make idols and then we seek for them to deliver us. If you're on social media too much, maybe it's because you're trying to just escape from the social situation. You don't want to actually talk to someone. You just want to look on your phone. I do that. I'm standing in line for coffee and I just pull out my phone because then I don't have to talk to people, right? I'm guilty of that. Maybe, um, maybe it's a substance that, so they can deliver you from pain. Maybe your idol is to deliver you from a situation at work. Maybe your idol is money so you can deliver you from whatever situation you're in now. The point is, we look at this and we think, these people are absurd, Right? Look at this. This is absurd. And then we do it. It's so easy to look at this and say, oh my gosh, the absurdity. Look, they, they take a piece of wood and they craft it and they burn it and then they worship it. That's absurd. And then we turn around and we do the same thing in our own lives. We, we take something that was never meant to be worshipped and we make it our God. And then we say, deliver me. Deliver me from the anxieties and the sorrows and the pains of this world. We, we depend on things to deliver us from the things which God had already promised he would deliver us. It says, if you're anxious, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to me. And instead, we try to escape through things. And so, this is the, this is the funny thing about these idols, is that what was made for consumption, was made for consumption, is also used for worship. So half of the materials are used for consumption, and the other half for worship. The thing we consume, we worship. And I, I kind of thought, you know, this is interesting, because in our consumerist society, this strikes a familiar chord, that the thing we consume is oftentimes the very thing we worship, right? The thing we consume is oftentimes the very thing that we are prone to worship. And ironically, what we set out to consume oftentimes ends up consuming us. When you realize, I watched one episode too much of Netflix today, or I spent just a little too long on Twitter today, or I was at work for maybe an extra hour today instead of being home. Whatever it is, the thing that we set out to consume in some way ends up consuming us. And this is the, the paradox of idolatry, is that what from the outside looks absurd from within consumes us. And this is what leads into the next section, the folly of the idolater. The folly of the idolater. Um, in verse 18, he says, they do not know, nor do they understand. 
He's smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, wait a minute, I've burned half of this, burned half of it in the fire, and I have baked bread over it, I roast meat, and then the rest I make into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. There's, there's no seeing or understanding to even recognize. And this is the danger. So God warns of the danger of idolatry. Because if you remember, God knows that they're going into Babylon. He's writing to a people who are not yet there but will be. And he says, okay, if you guys are going, you need to watch out. Because yes, we can look at idolatry from the outside and say, ha, this is absurd. These people are idiots. The idiocy of idolatry. And then if we're not careful, it consumes us. So he warns of the danger. He says the first thing is that the idolater becomes blind to his or her own sin. That's what he says in verse, seven, uh, in verse 18, that they, they cannot see and their hearts uh, are blinded. They cannot comprehend. So the idolater becomes blind to his or her own sin. And the next danger is that the idolater lacks understanding of his or her sin. No one recalls. There's no knowledge or understanding to, to even recognize that what I used for consumption I also worshipped. We, we fail to even see or understand and then finally, we're deceived. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So, the danger of idolatry is that it blinds us. We can call idolatry absurd, but then be fooled into partaking. We can be so influenced by the culture, by the pressure that says, hey, you can be a Christian and still look at this. You can be a Christian and still go here. You can be a Christian, that's fine, but just don't be weird about it. Don't tell other people about it. You can be a Christian and you can still come over here and do this. And so we, we start to slowly engage in the things of this world and become blind to the fact that we have an idol. We've constructed an idol in our lives. And so the deceived heart turns us aside. This is why 1 John 5.21 says we must guard against idols. Um, the danger of idolatry is we often can't even see it in our own lives. So we must guard against it. Little children, guard yourself from idols. It's the very last verse of 1 John. He's like, oh, and guard yourself. And the thing is, if idolatry is something that can sneak in, that we can be blind to, we have to be on guard. We can't just say, okay, that's fine. Yeah, there are idolater- there, there's idols in the world, but I just, I won't do it. No, we have to guard ourselves against idols. Um, but if it's true that we often can't see idolatry in our own lives, it raises an important question. Um, I was on the phone with my wife, Michelle. She's out of the country right now. She's on a mission trip. And uh, she was really bummed that she couldn't be here this morning while I was teaching because I think she idolizes me. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, but we were, we were talking on the phone and she was like, okay, just walk me through what you're teaching. And so I, I got to this part and, and she asked me this amazing question. She said, if we can be deceived and blind to our own idols, what do we do? Man, if you teach the Bible, that's your favorite question. If this is true, what do we do? And I was like, that's exactly the right question. If we can be blinded and deceived about our idolatry, 
what should we do? The first thing is to remember that God is supreme. Remember that God is supreme. Remember he said at the very beginning, do not be afraid, I alone am God. Is there any other God? I know of none. Remember that God is supreme. When, when we're tempted to engage in the passive idolatry of this world, remember that God is supreme. He alone is worthy of our worship. And remember, remember that we all engage in, in worship. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, the first step out of idolatry is to put your trust in Him. If you put your faith in Christ, He gives you eternal life. And that's the first thing. Begin to worship the only one worthy. The guarantee that you're worshiping something. So make your worship stop being so absurd and worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. Remember, the question is not whether you worship, but whom or what. Whom or what do you worship? The second thing, examine potential idols in your life to which you may be blind. Examine potential idols in your life to which you may be blind. I didn't come up with this, but I, I thought this was really good. There are a couple questions you can ask that help expose idols in your life. How, how do I spend my spare time? And how do I spend my spare money? If you remember baseball, I spent a lot of time. I spent quite a bit of money. Okay? Um, and, and so you might even ask the question this way. What do I spend so much time on that it leaves me at the end of the day saying, I don't have any time left to read my Bible? What do you spend your money on that leaves you at the end of the month saying, I don't have any money left to give to the church? That's a pretty good start to identify potential idols in your life to which you may be blind. Ask these questions. And finally, return to the God who redeemed you. I'm going to read verse 21. Um, of Isaiah 44. He says, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return to the God who has blotted out your sins, who has redeemed you.